If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So if some of you have been following this, just 12 days ago, so July 12th, 2022, we got our best look ever into deep space thanks to this thing called the James Webb Space Telescope. And truly an incredible human design. We'll go ahead and put a picture up here of the very first image that we got from this telescope. And if you're like me and you look at this image, I never felt smaller. Because these are not thousands of stars. These are thousands of galaxies, whole galaxies. So if you go somewhere dark enough at night and you look up into the sky and you see that little band of light and dark across it called the Milky Way, you're looking at kind of the edge of one of the spiral arms of our own galaxy from the inside. This is thousands of galaxies. And I was impressed. I was like, wow, to look into deep space and think like there are thousands of whole galaxies out there. It was incredible. And then I read this scientist that was explaining this photo and like, what are you seeing? And why are lights bending? And why are there different colors and all that? And he said, this field of view in this photo is if you took a grain of sand and held it at arm's length. And it's that much of the sky. And I was like, well, I feel tiny. I feel really small. Let me put a couple other photos up here as this James Webb Space Telescope continued to shoot photos and we're getting these incredible pictures of nebula and like stars that have exploded and are expanding outward and whole galaxies that are being absorbed into something else and light bending because the gravitational pull is so powerful, it's bending light. And I start trying to wrap my mind around this and I felt what maybe some of you felt or at least feel now looking at this. I feel infinitesimally small and I feel like whatever is out there is just incomprehensibly, like mind-blowingly enormous. But what do you feel when you look at pictures like this? I feel a sense of awe, like a sense of wonder of just like, this stuff is out there, like way so far out there that before this moment of time, human beings didn't even see this. Certainly not in this kind of clarity or this kind of detail. I feel a sense of worship. I feel a sense of my own insignificance. I feel Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that is humankind that you are mindful of him? What David expresses here in this psalm is kind of this 
paradoxical significance of humankind. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. Like, how could you be saying both of those things at the same time and both of them be true? They seem to contradict each other. That on the one hand, it's like, do you ever feel like, and I'm not like asking for a show of hands because it's hard to admit, but sometimes you feel like the center of your own little world and you're like, other people's lives should orbit around me because I'm so important and like I'm kind of the center of the universe and at least humankind, like we are the center of the universe and we're so important and we're so glorious and grand and look at the, look at the works of our hands. And at other times, we consider the billions of galaxies that surround us and we feel like we're absolutely nothing. Like our lives lived out, even if we live to be a hundred, it's like, what is, it's a blip of time. And it's so inconsequential of an impact that I'm making with my life. And, and David can hold those two things up side by side and say, yeah, both of those are true. Not that you're the center of the universe, but that you're very, very, very important to God. And yet in the grand scheme of things, you are tiny. Every time I put these two truths together, I think of this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon I'll put it up here and just let you process it for a second. Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorites. Calvin's just standing out under the deep sky and he's just gazing off into space. And he's like, I am significant, yelled the speck of dust. And he's realizing both. Like, I, I want even my, like my parents' world should revolve around me and shaking my fist at the heavens about my importance and realizing like, wow, this just even this one little space that I see of the sky on this one little planet in this one little solar system of this one little galaxy, I feel like nothing. I want you to hear this paradoxical realization that we matter deeply to God and yet our significance in the grand scheme of things is fairly insignificant. And I think there are moments like these pictures coming from the Webb Space Telescope that are meant to make us feel that, that are meant to remind us life is not all about you. Life is not all about me. Life is not all about us collectively as humankind. Life is all about God. And Romans says every single thing is from him and through him and to him. It's all for his glory. It's all designed to make much of him as our creator and our savior and our king. Some themes that we've already sung about this morning. So I want to give you this theme. Here's what I hear David saying in the psalm. He's saying the path to true wisdom is recognizing how everything displays the majesty and glory of God. Everything displays the majesty and glory of God. And you notice this psalm is, is framed or it's kind of like bookended by the same words in verse 1 and again in verse 9 where he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is in, in everything created that we can comprehend, your name is majestic. So what David's telling us with this psalm is all about the majesty and the glory of God. And what he's saying is, I, I see it three ways. Number one, the cosmos displays the glory of God. Number two, humankind displays the glory of God. And number three, the gospel displays the glory of God. And before we unpack those, I just want to get a handle on what what do we even mean when I say the glory of God? 
I mean, the word in the Old Testament could literally be like the weight of something, like the gravity of something, the, the, the value of something, the splendor of something, the power of something, the, the beauty of something. Like all these are wrapped up into the idea of glory. And you see it here again, verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I want you to notice that first Lord is all capital letters and the second one is not. So the first one is God's covenant name. And the second one is his title or role. The, the first one is Yahweh, his name. The second one just literally means something like master. So he's like, oh, Yahweh, our master. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And you say, so is he saying the name Yahweh is majestic? And I would say, yes. In the same way that, like, you may hear a name and associate it like Magnus or Maximilian or something, and you're like, ooh, what a, what a glorious name that is, you know? It just, just communicates, like, this weightiness of, like, Hercules or Samson, you know, and we hear names that we associate. But it's actually, the, the Hebrew word here for name, yes, it means name, but it also means your reputation, your fame, your honor, so what he's really saying is something like, God, in all the inhabited and even the uninhabited earth, your majesty is famous. It's renowned everywhere. Everyone can see how beautiful, how awesome, how powerful you are. And my question is, how can we see that? How can we see how powerful God is? How can we see how beautiful God is? How can we see the weight of his character, the gravity, the immensity of his character, because we, we could look into heaven even at night and like we don't see God. But the psalmist comes right back to how do you see the splendor, the majesty, the authority, the strength of God? Well, you see it in the three things that I just mentioned that are here in the psalm. You see it in the cosmos, you see it in humankind, and you see it in the gospel. And I want to look briefly at each of those. So number one, I said the cosmos, that is like the entire created universe, far beyond what we can comprehend, but everything else that's out there everywhere, those grains of sand in every direction, as far as anything goes, that all displays the glory of God. Look at verse one, the second part. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. So, so beyond what we can see, beyond what we can comprehend, God, you've set your glory above that. He says in verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And he's going to go on. But what I want you to notice with the beginning of verse 3 is he's actually, he's calling us to not just see. We see a lot of things. But the word that he uses is look, like consider, meditate on what it is that you're seeing when you look up into the heavens and you see not photos like this, but when you see even the things that you see. You know, a few nights ago, some friends and I were on the back porch of this restaurant and we saw like one of the Starlink satellites went over. I don't know if any of you saw this on Friday night, like 9.50, like very bright. It looked like a falling star, except it was very slow, but this long trail, I looked it up on like what was that meteor I just saw.com or what? Did, that's not an actual site, but it was something like that, you know? And it was like, oh, that was a Starlink. And I was like, man, even, even the ability of humans, like, thank you, Elon, like threw something up there that's really pretty at night, you know? But like, let alone what God does, we're called to stop, observe, wonder. Like taking it away from just like looking into the heavens, there's a call to examine really all of creation. And we have an amazing opportunity to do that because we live in one of the most beautiful places on earth. 
And it's like everywhere you go, it's like the, the splendor of the Rocky Mountains and the flowing streams and you're hiking along and there's this glacier-fed lake that you're like, how many people have even ever seen that and spent time here? They're all really spectacular. But living in a very like, liberal and progressive place like Denver, do you notice how many people see the same things that you see and they give glory and honor and praise to the creation instead of the creator? They're like, wow, what a stunning view. I wonder how this got here. Oh, the stars. Like, I should map those out and figure out what they're saying for my life. And I think it's a little bit like um, several years ago, I think Marty had a, a work trip or a par partial work and play trip in Seattle. We went along and we went to the Chihuly Museum next to the Space Needle in Seattle. And we're, we're walking along and we're looking at all these different shapes and like the twists and turns and the, the perfectly round spheres and the colors and the textures and all this stuff. And it would just be like walking into the Chihuly Museum and being like, wow, this blown glass is just marvelous. I mean, look at the, the intense, vibrant colors and the, the, the shapes. And it's just amazing how these things spontaneously assembled themselves in this museum and just look beautiful. Um, I wonder what this could possibly mean for my life. My point is when you, when you walk into the Chihuly Museum, the art says something about the artist. Actually, it says a lot about the artist, Dale Chihuly. And you can learn a lot about how, and you can even read different exhibits as you walk through there of like different techniques that he began to experiment with. And he actually developed and patented different ways of working with glass that now he teaches other people. And how much more is that true on a grander scale of God that as we look at anything that he's like hurled out there in space for his glory, we're not just meant to sit there and be like, oh, wow, like, what does this mean for my life? I love creation. Creation is so beautiful. We're meant to stop and consider, what is this saying about my creator? What is this saying about, again, all these facets of glory? What is this saying about his power, his creativity, his wisdom, his design as a, like a master architect and engineer who figured all this out? And I actually encourage you, you know, whether you go back and you can Google pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, which was the predecessor to the Webb Telescope, uh, it's actually interesting to see now they've started shooting photos of some of the same galaxy spirals. I saw one yesterday where it's like, this is what the Hubble picture looks like. Now, here's what the Webb picture looks like. And you're like, okay, wow. Because it just, it just takes you deeper in and closer in to develop all this detail. And I'm actually saying like, yeah, Google some of those pictures, pull them up on your computer, pull them up on your phone, not right now, um, but um, pull them up. Um, don't just look at them, ponder them. Give, your space, give yourself space to feel. Not just mentally processing like, oh, it's these types like hydrogen gas interacting with helium atoms and you have these colors. And I mean like give yourself space to feel and what is that that you feel? It's awe, it's wonder. It's a sense of God's immensity set against our own dependency. So that's what I see in these photos. Undeniable hints of the beauty, the power, the majesty, the wonder, the creativity, the authority of God. And I love how the psalmist just says like, all that things that you're looking to in deep space that are all, they're galaxies and they're bending around each other because 
and it's like you're, you're looking, you know, they say like billions of light years away is how far this telescope is looking. And the psalmist is actually like, yeah, God did that with just like a word from his mouth and just like the fidgeting of his fingers. And that's probably anthropomorphic. It's not saying God has hands like we do, but it's just like the stuff you do with your fingers is like, it was that easy for God to just hurl all of this out there in its beauty and its majesty and its splendor. All right, so the cosmos displays the glory of God. And I'm just encouraging you wherever you go, a thunderstorm, the raging of a powerful waterfall. Um, spring break, we got to stand on the, like, the shoreline of Hawaii that's just like these huge rocks getting battered by the waves. And I think you would be wise to get in situations like that, get out of the city from time to time, put yourself in situations where you feel very small and you feel something, like just a little hint of the greatness and the grandeur and the bigness of God. The cosmos declares, displays the glory of God. Secondly, I said humankind displays God's glory. How? Well, let's look at verses four through eight again. So he goes on after saying, let's consider the stars and the heavens and those heavenly bodies. He goes on, what is man in contrast, basically, that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And if you're familiar with this, this sounds an awful lot like something that we just talked about in our last series on faith and work, going back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This sounds a lot like the cultural mandate of God saying to Adam, the first man, you have a special place in my creation, and I'm giving you my representative authority as I create you in my image to rule over everything else, to govern and to care for, to steward creation. And what I see here is David actually isn't pointing out the insignificance of humankind. He's answering his own question of like, what is humankind that you are mindful of us? He's pointing out then the significance. And he's saying, well, why is God mindful of us? As tiny as we are in the, in the vast scheme of things, why is God so deliberate with humanity? And he's going to say, because out of all your creation, God, you've given humans a special design and a special role. I want to talk for a moment about each of those. Special design, look at this. He says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Okay, who is crowned with glory and honor? It's God. It's king. He is crowned. He is the king. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. So, so what is this of like, you have crowned humanity with glory and honor, it's, it's a way of saying, I've taken something that is true of me, my character, and I've passed it on to you uniquely as humans. I have now crowned you as, who gets crowned if you're king? Who else might get crowned is the king's kids. The king's sons and daughters are crowned as princes and princesses, and sometimes they're sent to faraway places to represent the father to represent the king and to say, we come in his glory, we come in his authority, and we are here to rule in the way that he would have. So you see this unique design of humankind. And it's interesting, 
It actually says, you, you've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings, there's the word Elohim, which like in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim. So some people translate it, you have made him a little lower than God. Um, and that's possible, although that's not how the New Testament treats it, which we'll see before the end of this message. But Elohim can also be a plural for like heavenly creatures, like angels. Okay. So the point here is not like you're gods with like a little g. The point is you're princes and princesses. You're, you're children of the king. And he's, he's given you this unique design of like, bear my image, look like me. And then the unique role, he goes on, you have given him that is humankind. You've given humankind dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And this is simply the idea, again, from Genesis 1 of stewardship. That now, uh, another way to say it is we rule on this earth kind of as vice regents of God. He's like, I made you in my image and likeness. I gave you some of my authority to go and to govern the other creatures, to take the raw materials of the earth and to do something constructive with them, to design them and develop them and build them for the common good. That's all what's being pictured here. So we have this very unique design. We have this very unique role. And I just want to encourage you before I move on, what, what this is saying is because of the dominion that God has given you to, to work as you believe God himself would work, that means any good work glorifies God. Any good work done well proclaims and illustrates the kind of God that he is. And I want you to think about this intentionally, whether you go back to work right after this service or tomorrow morning or a few days later. And I mean, again, vocational work, your job, but also all the things that you're doing just to upkeep your home and upkeep your yard. Like we're, we're meant to say, okay, if I'm ruling as a vice regent of God and humankind is meant to display your glory, then when I work creatively, I'm saying something about your creativity, God. When I work with wisdom and intentionality, I'm saying something about your wisdom and intentionality. When I work to bring actual justice to my neighbors, I'm saying something about your love of justice. When I am merciful and compassionate and kind with the work of my hands or the work of my mind, I'm saying something about the kindness and compassion and the grace of God. So you can be intentional about this. You don't have to just fall into this and be like, well, I don't know how much I glorify God today. You can go into your work specifically and say, I want to, I want to rule and reign with God, under God, and maintain care of the things that God has put in my life so that my work says something about his worth, his love, his truth. So the cosmos displays God's glory. Humankind displays God's glory. Finally, the gospel displays God's glory. You might be like, whoa, I believe that, but I do not see any gospel in this psalm, pal. Well, one of the things we do with the Old Testament when we read it is we say, is there anywhere that the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and if so, like if it, if it quotes a verse or if it paraphrases an idea, we're like, I want to know how the New Testament is using this because that's going to inform my idea. So I want to show you here in closing how the New Testament quotes Psalm 8 in two different places, and both of them are very important to show you the gospel hope, okay? So let's look at both of those. Let's draw some conclusions. Now, you may have noticed I skipped verse 2 so far. 
because it's confusing. I mean, that's not the only reason I skipped it, but it's part of why I skipped it. It's confusing. You read it. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and avenger. Got it. And we're like, no, actually, I, I didn't get that. Like, what, what's it saying? It's saying something like this. Established strength is something like laying the foundations of a stronghold or laying the foundations of power. So what he's saying is, and remember, he's talking to God. He's worshiping God. He's reflecting God's majesty back to him. So he's like, God, you have laid the foundations of a stronghold against your enemies, against your adversaries, against those who would oppose you. And you've done it through the words of babies. In other words, like helpless, dependent people. So you want to see how the New Testament uses this? Matthew chapter 21 if you're familiar with kind of the Christian liturgical calendar, Matthew 21 probably happens on Palm Sunday. So it's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Jesus has, has ridden up to Jerusalem, which seems down to us, but it's actually up a hill. So it's down on a map, but it's up a hill. So he's riding up into Jerusalem the final time, and many of the people are recognizing this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the anointed one from God who's going to come and liberate broken people and sinful people. And he's here, and they're, they're throwing palm branches in the street as he rides on this colt of a donkey, like a harmless work animal. I'm going to pick up the reading of Matthew 21, verse 12, because this is likely the same day. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Okay, so let, let's unpack this. Psalm 8 talks about adversaries to God. Who does Jesus now tell you those adversaries are? It's people who can look at him, who can hear his words, who can literally witness his miracles of healing and restoration with their own eyeballs and still say, I will not recognize your divinity. You are not my God. They're, they're people like the religious leaders of Israel. Those were these two words, priests and scribes. They're the religious leaders of Israel who use religion as a means of self-advancement instead of using religion as a means of just praising and worshiping God. Okay, those are the adversaries. Who are the babies and infants? Well, well literally, they're little children in the temple saying, Hosanna, son of David. They're these blind and lame, that, that picture of helplessness. If you're blind, you, you can't see. So in, in this period of time, before the, some of the advancements that we have, they would, they would need help to like get around. The lame would need help to get around. But they're shouting Hosanna, which means, Lord, please save us. 
So they're recognizing you are Lord. You're not just a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. You're not just a good man. You're not just a, a, a traveling itinerant preacher. They're saying, Lord, you are Lord. Save us now. And, and here's what we see in this picture. That as Jesus comes, actually walks this earth, and Psalm 8 begins to unfold, we see a lot of the haves rejecting Jesus, saying, you're not my king, you're not my Lord, you're not my God. And you see a lot of the have-nots, the nobodies, the babies, saying, my king, I trust you. And so Psalm 8 is actually hinting at a key feature of the gospel, that the good news of salvation is available to anyone because it's available on the basis of grace. None of us deserve it. So very often, Jesus is saying the strong and the, the smart and the wealthy, they just don't get it because they're like, no, I, I want to earn it. They want to flex. They want it to be for their own tribe. It's like country club lifestyle. It's like, ah, if I see people dress certain way around here, if I know like, oh, you don't come from our neighborhood and you do not shop in our price range, what are you doing here? I mean, wealthy people can be that way with the gospel. Like, I want a tribe that's kind of like, it takes something to get in here, you know? And God's like, the only thing that qualifies you for my salvation is nothing. You have nothing to offer me. Um, you're, you're dependent. You're like a baby when it comes to your spirituality and your righteousness. You need me. So the first time Psalm 8 is quoted, and it's like God is laying a foundation of a stronghold against his adversaries through the words of babies and infants. He's saying something like, I'm laying a, a stronghold to, to tear down the boastful and the arrogant and the wealthy and the powerful who boast in their own stuff instead of boasting in the glory of God. And I'm doing it through the mouths of babies who are just like, I don't know, I'm two years old, but I can see that he's king. I can see that he just opened the eyes of that blind man. So I think you're God. So the stronghold is grace, tearing down merit. That's the first time Psalm 8 is quoted. Let's look at the second. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. This, this one's funny. It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> that's, that's that. And then you have to go back and search. Like, where did, where did he get that from? But he says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So hopefully these words are, are ringing familiar from Psalm 8. He goes on. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Okay, because when I read Psalm 8 and it said, you made him a little lower than the angels or a little lower than heavenly beings, I'm pretty sure in Psalm 8, he was talking about humanity as a whole and this cultural mandate, but you come to the New Testament and he's like, I now want to apply those words to one person, Jesus Christ. And I don't think we saw that coming when we just read Psalm 8. 
Here's the thing. Yes, Psalm 8 is meant to say humankind. You have this unique design. You have this unique role. Okay? I have made you my sons and daughters. I have made you princes and princesses. I have made you vice regents, representatives. I have given you my glory and my honor. I've given you authority on earth to rule as vice regents and to to, to care for the world the way that you know I would care for it. And how is that experiment going? How is it going? Because we see people, sometimes we are those people, who have power and wisdom and authority, like all kinds of gifts from God to use for his glory and for the care of his creation. And we see abusive power structures, abusive individuals, people who take these gifts from God and instead of glorifying him and serving other people with the power and authority they have, it's, it's about building self up, tearing others down and actually using the authority from God to have dominion, to do really unchristlike things, to do the very opposite of what God calls us to do. So while humans have done many incredible and noteworthy things to image God, building hospitals, designing beautiful buildings and gardens that, that reflect something of God's image, we're a mixed bag, right, at best, because we do a lot of bad things too. And God could have just destroyed us and said, you are not living up to Psalm 8 or Genesis 1. You are not living up to your design. You're not living up to your role. Be gone. But instead, God became the true human in the person of Jesus. He's saying the the eternal son of God became the son of man. The creator became the creation He who made the angels became lower than the angels. Why? Well, Hebrews 2 says it's so that he could live the life you and I should have lived. And so he could die the death that you and I should have died. See, first of all, it says, Jesus, you were made the true human of Psalm 8 so that you could receive dominion on earth, so that you could put things under your feet, so that you could rule and govern on earth the way that everyone else was meant to rule and govern but didn't. So when Jesus is walking around the earth, and this part was incredible about it, and for 30 years, I mean, he probably had a few years where he didn't know how to do this yet, but he's the son of a carpenter. He becomes a carpenter. So for most of his life, he's not even an itinerant preacher. He's a carpenter. He's building houses. So there must be something about even building houses that could establish dominion in a way that honors God, that reflects God's character, God's love, God's kindness, God's order for his world. But then he goes on to heal and restore, to speak words of transformation. And everything Jesus is doing as the true human is he's he's fulfilling Psalm 8 for all of us. Because where we had dominion and we just kind of blew it and we still will, Jesus, when he got dominion, he always did the right thing with that authority and with that gift, with that ability that he had. So he lived the life we should have lived. Second, notice verse 9 of Hebrews 2 says, Jesus became the true human of Psalm 8 so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for us. And think about that. Psalm 8 is already foreshadowing 
our failure as humankind to glorify God and the fact that we would need the Son of God to become lower than the angels, to, to, to kind of take on our flesh and take our place and stand in our stead and die to wash away the judgment that we deserve because we failed. And this is incredible. Like David's sitting here and he's like, the entire cosmos, God, reflects your glory. Humankind in all its brokenness, as we have dominion and stewardship, we're reflecting something of your glory. It's, it's messed up. It's imperfect. It's broken. It's marred. But you still see glimpses here and there, and especially if you're looking for them. You see glimpses in humankind of like, we're not just the highest form of ape. We don't just have bigger brains. It's like, no, we're, we're doing things because we didn't just get here by chance. God said, I make man and woman in my image, in my likeness. We're unique in all of creation. But we fail, so we get the gospel. Where, where David's even looking ahead, and I don't, I don't think he even knew what he was talking about when he had a couple of these verses. He's not like, oh, I bet the author of Hebrews is going to quote this in this way, and it's going to be like Jesus. But that's the reality of the psalm, that like all these years later, God makes himself lower than the angels to live and die in our place. So the cosmos glorifies God, humankind glorifies God, and the gospel glorifies God by shining a spotlight on this selflessly steadfast love that says, I'll do Psalm 8 for you so that you can get the blessing, the delight in the most delightful object in the universe. And I won't, I won't put these pictures back up there, but you, you look at what some of the heavenly bodies look like, and it's like, whew, can you imagine what God looks like? Like, wh where is he? I mean, maybe, maybe this is a practical takeaway for someone. You're, you're like struggling. You're like, where are you? And he is being way more patient than you are about something. And I just don't want you to give up on the fact that the God who threw all of that out there and then created humankind and then came and gave his life for humankind, he is really big. He's really good. He's really in control. And I want to conclude with just three practical things. Like, I'll just state them. Number one, practice awestruck humility. Practice it. I think it's, it's a missing thing in our culture. We just zing from work to like media to social media and then fall on our beds at night and like, man, I'm so stressed. I got so much stuff going on. Like we need rhythms of pause in our life where we are fixing our eyes and our minds and our hearts on something that's gonna just strike us with awe and be like, wow, that's incredible. So my God must be that much more incredible. The, the, the Niagara, like just standing there and feeling the pounding of the water like hundreds of feet away. And that's like one tiny little waterfall on one tiny little river in one tiny little state of one tiny little country on one tiny little continent on one tiny little planet. I mean, we could keep going and going. Practice awestruck humility. It will, it will change the way you think about God in circumstances to get away and be like, this is big. This is huge. Number two, pursue your calling. Just understanding like, hey, hey we're all broken. I'm going to mess this up. You're going to mess this up. But God did give us dominion and authority and stewardship to say, go govern and care for 
Go work in a way that you know glorifies me. And then thirdly, just praise God every chance you get. I mean, my family could tell you I'm like probably quicker to like find fault in something and work on it and fix it. And, and there's, there's a defect there of like, we do this with God where it's like, we know when God's messed up and we're able to tell him like, you're, you're too slow, you're too fast. This didn't go the way it was supposed to. And just like, just, just read Psalm 8 one time every day this week. Oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praise God every chance you get. Let me close with these words from the song, So Will I. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. Okay, that's not just like the light was off, now it's on. Like you see the wonder of light in exploding nebula and galaxies, the wonder of light. He goes on, as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made, every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. Will you sing his praises as creation invites you to and join in the song that's been going on long before we got here and will continue forever?